Hey, good morning, good afternoon or good evening to you, depending on when you're watching this edition of Hypnosis Week Live or listening to the audio podcast download version, whichever it may be. As usual, it's me, Alex Williams-Smith by birth, but better known to many of you as Jonathan Royal, the British bad boy of hypnosis. And wow, have I got another amazing guest for you this week, whose brain we're going to try and pick and get some nuggets from uh, for you then to hopefully be motivated to visit the links that will be below this video or below the uh, audio track on the podcast to be able to go and visit his website and chase down his live courses, uh, his online courses uh, at the moment, if we're still in lockdown, because this is being recorded on the 28th of April 2020, if you find it in the future. And of course, his amazing best-selling book, The Ellipsis Manual. Um, so many of you may have guessed by now, the gentleman you see in front of you is uh, Mr. Chase Hughes joining us. Uh, welcome to the show, sir. Good to have you, man. Good to be here. Now, look, we... we for people, if you if you don't know what the ellipsis manual is, then you need to really go on to the links below and grab a copy. You'll learn more about it during the next hour. However, I'm guessing a large number of people watching or listening to this will have at the very least heard about you and the book. Um, if not already read it, you have positioned yourself as an expert in human behavior. So but as a whole, so not not as a body language expert, not as a NLP, ISSNQ expert, not as a verbal linguistic expert, but kind of a hybrid with elements of them all, which obviously we're going to talk about in the next hour. But there was a time when you weren't known as that. Yeah. Who was Chase Hughes before? What was your journey to get here? So I, I did uh, 20 years in the U.S. military, and I retired as a chief just uh, about a year and a half ago. All right. So I, I've just recently become a civilian, which is one of the reasons that I was able to come out and say that I do all of this stuff recently. So I spent my whole career doing intelligence operations and I was the navigator of a guided missile destroyer for a while and moved here to Virginia Beach, where I, I live now with my family. Mm -hmm. We're here on lockdown during the COVID times, if anybody's watching this in the future. Yeah. But uh, most of my career, I was obsessed with human behavior. And a lot of what I did revolved around developing techniques and tactics and procedures we call them TTPs in the military. And those that I tried to develop were for our intelligence work. So my ultimate aim was we have a situation in an intelligence situation. I'm, I'm training you to go out and do intelligence work. And let's say you speak Ukrainian and I'm going to send you to Ukraine and you've got to meet up with a guy at a bar in a hotel somewhere and you have two hours to talk this person into committing treason against their own country basically and providing intelligence to the okay. u.s and and potentially facing the death penalty that person will be and in in my line of work if if we make mistakes or if we if we do something stupid just one mistake my head's going to get cut off on the internet and my kids are going to watch it 
So my the stakes for me creating a lot of these programs and a lot of these techniques were pretty high. So that's where a lot of this originated from. But it all started when I was 19. I was stationed in Pearl Harbor in Hawaii in the Navy. And I was out at a bar. And I asked some young lady to go on a date with me. She said no, very politely. And I went home th that evening. And I typed into the Internet how to tell when girls like you. And it I printed out a massive stack of body language articles. I got obsessed with it. I think I might have had some social anxiety when I was younger because the better I got at reading people and understanding that they were all human beings, that mm -hmm. like everybody screwed up, everybody. And it, it humanized everybody. I never felt superior to anyone. But once I could see fears and insecurities and weaknesses and fluctuations in behavior, it it made people more approachable and it was easier to talk to them. So did you, you did you look at you looked into body language? But I've got to ask you this. Did you come across the because if, if I'm right, your if my research and memory is right, you're about 38, 39 this year. Yeah. So I'm, yeah, I'm not too far off. So on the time scale you mentioned there, Ross Jeffrey's stuff would have been all over the internet, the speed seduction yeah. stuff. Did you come across any of that when you were looking for answers to why she wasn't interested? Or I did. And that, that really didn't interest me in the beginning, especially I just wanted to know. I wanted to find a way that I could tell if if she was interested, then I could ask. So I didn't, I didn't ever want to fail again, but not, I didn't want to like level up my technique. I just wanted to know, is, is it okay for me to ask this person, like how to tell when somebody's attracted to you? But definitely the, the influence and hypnosis stuff definitely came in later. And, you know, I spent a lot of our, our taxpayers money getting training in, in, in a lot of these techniques and a lot of these tactics. And we continuously brought in experts that said they were at you know influence I could persuade anybody to do anything and we get them into a room you know they're they're great at writing books about it they're great at teaching it up on a stage but when it comes time to do it and you're and you're put on the spot to actually produce some kind of result it was it was sad a lot of these people couldn't perform what they were teaching that they could say they they did yeah. and that that was concerning to me. So and the reason I wrote the ellipsis manual is because it, it was the book that I wanted to read. It was the book that I needed. So we combined a lot. We invented a lot of new techniques and new new procedures because reading people, if you go buy a book on persuasion or, or even the books on hypnosis, really, they they tend to treat everybody as if they're the same type of person. Like, here's a technique that works most of the time for most people in some situations. And that's great for therapy, maybe, but it's definitely not good for intelligence work. And it's definitely not good when the stakes are really high. Oh. Um, no, I mean, I first came across, uh, well, the only way to put it is, I'd call it, I don't know. We're saying intelligent. I suppose it is the same with British Army, similar things. One of the guys I studied with years back, a guy called Delavar, um, 
who, if he was alive still, would be best part of 100, but he's no longer with us. His parents and his grandparents were also hypnotists, except it was back in the day when it was called suggestive therapeutics. I mean, I'm really going back. And he, his family, um, during the war, helped run these drug ho- drug hospitals. So they, they used to give people in the light Russian packs drugs, basically, for, on the battlefield. And then they come back and they're addicted to it. And he put them to sleep for a week, hypnotised, so they'd go through the cold turkey without any discomfort. But then he was also involved in teaching certain military how to get people to do things that they wouldn't normally do through hypnosis. And yet, you mentioned trainers that they write the books. Fine in the seminar room, because in that context where people paid a shitload of money to be there, yeah, they're in a frame of mind where they make things work. It's the easiest environment, isn't it? Um, but then they can't do it in the real world. Most of these trainers say you cannot make people do things against their will uh, with hypnosis or such techniques, which is complete and utter. I know it to be bollocks. I've, I've, I've had to do it, and that's part of the reason I get slagged off in England, because I'll openly go on TV shows and make people do what would be considered not for TV shows, a criminal jailable offences yeah um what and i've seen your work what's your insight on because you know you come but from a military background um how i I know there's in england you've got the official secrets act and no doubt you've got certain things you can and can't talk about as well but what in terms of what you can talk about to what level are you aware in america of um, I'm going to term it as hypnotizing people to do things against the will. Yeah. And so, so you know, mind-controlled assassins, that kind of stuff. That is a hundred percent possible. Mm. I have uh, a couple of documents I can I can actually send you. You can put in the show notes if you like. Okay. That uh, there's a man out here who was doing it in the late 50s. His name is Dr. George Estabrooks. He was a oh, professor yeah. of psychology. I went to his home. I have access to his notebooks, his research papers, oh. everything. And he was the guy who kind of invented the Manchurian candidate concept. Uh, and and well, keep in mind. MK Ultra, wasn't he, through the CIA? Yeah. And it's. Keep in mind, I mean, the MK Ultra program started out with very good intentions to from very patriotic people, and there were no restraints or no financial restraints, and these dipshit morons started taking over. And there's medical doctors that are violating their ethics ethics rules, and it got out of hand really fast. Well, when you get the likes of Joseph Mengel. Nazi from Germany smuggled into America involved in stuff. It's likely to go that way, isn't it? Yeah. And a lot of people think that's just a conspiracy theory, but it's a, it's a fact. It's If you want to Google it, it's called Operation Paperclip. We, mm. we pulled all the Nazis here, gave them some kind of a witness protection program kind of a thing. And But Esther Brooks wanted to do the Manchurian candidate programming to send army officers voluntarily. He wanted to get volunteers across enemy lines with secrets 
but the secrets were compartmentalized in another personality or another side of this partitioned brain of this person. And his hope was that if they got captured, the person on the other side wouldn't know the password to unlock or activate this other personality, even if they were tortured or, or whatever. But, but doing it against somebody's will, if I, if I could take a minute to address that. Hmm. If, if, if we say the word will, that implies knowledge of activity. So if you and I are sitting at a dinner table and I'm like, hey, Jonathan, I'm going to give you an injection. And you're like, no, you're not, brother. I'm going to kill you if you try to do that. And then I come at you with a needle. You can punch me in the face. You can stab me. You can stop me from doing it. Well, I could try, but I've got a funny feeling you'd have an advantage with your military training. <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> However, if if you don't, if I don't announce, hey, I'm going to give you an injection, I say, hey, I'm going to go to the bathroom, and I just come behind you and poke that thing in your neck, then it's done. So will implies I'm going to hypnotize you, and then you can you can try to resist. Which, of course, people can put up a, a large barrier. They can put their fingers in their ears and yell so they can't hear you. There's all kinds of you know, countermeasures. But if it's done without awareness, then it's absolutely possible. So whether or not you can do it against your will is one question that hypnotists like to say. Like, you, know, you can resist all you want. But if it's done without your awareness or consent, that is absolutely possible. For sure. I mean, you're completely right, but I would categorically state as well from my experience that you can let people know, challenge them to try to not be hypnotized and end up in what most people will call a hypnotized, mind-controlled state where you can make them do things and afterwards play the footage back, which I've done this for TV shows in England, uh, magicalguru.com hypnosis week go on there there's uh, videos of me the people knew they were going to be hypnotized they had to resist a couple they gave me eight people of those uh three of them did manage to resist in the time constraints given that's the key if i'd have had longer i reckon i'd have got more than five out of eight they knew that i was going to get them to do things or try to get them to do things that would be deemed morally or legally wrong uh and ultimately we did end up getting people to shoplift we did get people to reveal to me their computer passwords bank sorting codes so i could go and empty the bank accounts and stuff i mean we did end up giving them the money back at a later stage so i'm now don't have to come after me please it's okay we did get consent forms after the event um but it's about how you go about it. Delavar used to say to me, it's perception, will and consent or moral values or codes. Your hypnotherapist get taught you can't make people do things against the moral codes, so therefore you can't have a mind-controlled assassin. But Delavar said, well, simple. Hypnotize them, make them think they're like five years old playing cowboys and Indians. Yeah. And when they see per, a person dressed a certain way, that they'll take the cap gun from the pocket that they'll find inside to shoot the big bad Indian. And that's what they think they're doing. So it's something that would fit within their moral code. Yeah. You know? 
It's so true. And and that this goes harkens back to the Sirhan Sirhan case. Yeah. Well, who the for anybody who doesn't know, it's the the guy who shot Bobby Kennedy and who there's a, a tremendous amount of evidence that that suggests that there's a possibility that he was programmed for lack of a better word to mm. to commit the act. And I've I've corresponded with Sirhan a, a few times just because you have to do handwritten letters. Uh-huh. And he, he declined an interview. I tried to go out and interview him. He's in, in prison in San Diego, California right now. And his final chance at, at parole just a couple of years ago was fin- was disapproved. Yeah. He, he, you mentioned briefly before about splintering uh, uh, of the mind. So for people at home who may not know, this is psychological Often with MK Ultra, it was trauma, trauma or, or pain or fear would be used um, to emotionally overwhelm somebody so that they would repress, as it gets called in therapy, what was going on to try and protect themselves, disassociate from it, and that could create multiple personalities. So DSM makes mention of um, multiple personality disorder, used to be called. Well, it also gets called bipolar now as well. Um, it's 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 nowadays they call it dissociative identity disorder (DID). Yeah, different. You look DSM four called it different things to DSM five, which is a work yeah. of fiction to sell drugs anyway. But that is kind of the stuff that Esther Brooks went into as well, didn't he? Absolutely, and there's there's three types of multiple personalities or three types of dissociation identity disorder, dissociative identity. One is traumagenic, and traumagenic means that it's formed by trauma. Uh, Animals do this all the time. A a zebra gets attacked by a a crocodile and forms the animal's present conscious awareness is not really there right now. They go somewhere else, and humans do it too, especially kids, you know, kids who are abused or Mm -hmm. physically, sexually, emotionally, they they tend to compartmentalize the experience into another place so that kind of creates a trauma partition in the mind and the second way that is is more common with the mk ultra stuff is called iatrogenic dissociation and iatrogenic is is just a fancy medical word for illness created by a doctor or medical provider so we can create a multiple personalities. Doctors can do this on accident. There's a famous researcher who's who's responsible for this. I've spoken to before. His name is Dr. Colin Ross. He's written about this. This is deliberate creation and accidental creation of dissociation. So imagine just sitting there with a therapist and you go in there with depression and he has you take a dissociative scale assessment and you take that test and he just the interpretation's up to him. So he tells you, you scored 18 out of 20 for multiple personality disorder. Now, I'd like to ask you a couple of questions. Have you, do you ever feel like there's maybe another part of you that wants to do something else? Of course, we're all going to say yeah. that. You know, we're all going to say yes. And then why don't, why don't you let that little boy come out? Why don't, why don't, what does he want to say right now? So then these questions are just leading and leading and leading to where this person's convinced that they have it. And that's that's the iatrogenic creation of it. And of course, you can do this under hypnosis and we can do it to where it's not a disorder as well. 
because the disorder, we can have an alter ego that doesn't ruin our life. At that point, it's not a disorder. It's just dissociation. Mm -hmm. So we can do this in therapy because just going back to the root of this, there's there's documented cases of dissociative identity disorder where one personality has glaucoma and the other one doesn't. Yeah. And one has diabetes and the other one doesn't. So if it's possible to create an alter just doing this that doesn't ruin their life. So can we have an someone who has depression can can there be an alter that doesn't? Or that someone that has suffers from severe imposter syndrome or phobias or fears or eating disorders, somebody who eats overeats too much. Can we have another part that that acts as a drill instructor, a little drill sergeant that goes in and, and takes care of it. So that way the brain, there's not a trauma partition there. So the habits that the one personality starts to learn go into the other part of that person. And I thought that was a, a, a brilliant way to put it. And of course it's been used for all kinds of intelligence stuff, but I thought it was, it could be really helpful in therapy. Yeah, definitely. Um, I mean, when it's done nefariously, as it were, MK ultrafied, um, tend to have the when they're installing the the trauma or, or the disassociation or they're abusing somebody, torturing them, sexually abusing them, whatever. That tends to be from what I, I, I've encountered, especially in the works of Fritz Springmeier. Um, they would have some sort of visual image on show at the time, which quite often could be, if this was a child, something like a, an image from Disney or an image from uh, Alice in Wonderland seems to be popular as well. So that, that image can yeah. be used symbolism to trigger off the other altar. Absolutely. And Fritz has written a few books on this. And just as a caveat, None of the documents that have ever been released prove that some of these things have, are ever ever did take place or ever really happened. As far as we know, there's only one source of that information, and that's some of those documents. But as far as being proven can be done, we can say that, you know, George Estabrooks did some kind of experiments like this. But there's no proof that we had a lot of traumagenic stuff like that. Uh, that that I've been aware of in my research. We've just kind of seen it in a couple of these books, people writing about it, which I've never seen proof of. But that doesn't mean it's not possible. It doesn't mean it didn't happen. Well, it but definitely, I think absolutely. It definitely might not. Have, there's no proof of it happening MK ultra wise categoric proof, although I'd say there's more than enough circumstantial proof that it begs questions. But there's certainly no question that it works. Yeah. Um, any therapist who's encountered people who've gone through multiple levels of child abuse, uh, like, you know, there's care. I'm sure this has happened in America as well, but I can only mention places in England. Uh, you know, there's Jimmy Savile, the British TV presenter that's no longer alive, thank God. And he would be involved in getting kids from care homes for the elite, for the... And these people would be raped multiple times by different people. And yeah. going through therapy, their stories that have come out of how they've had to break down those altars and treat each one because you've got to make it whole again, the person. 
which is something a lot of people miss when they're looking that stuff if they're trying to help court victims. Um, there's relate incredibly to what is out there as the circumstantial. You know, you relate the two, and it's like, yeah, there's too many coincidences for it not to have basis. There are quite a bit. And, and one of the really bad ones was a guy named Dr. Ewan Cameron, who was a Canadian. How do you spell uh, his first name? Ewan. Is it E? E-W-E-N. And he conducted experiments on behalf of the CIA at a place called the Allen Memorial Institute. And just as an example, and this is proven, the Canadian government's even rewarded them multiple sums of money for everything that happened. So these people did were victims of MKUltra, and they got paid back because they sued the government for participating. So, like, there's uh, one woman who goes in, she has just depression, and she's so excited to work with Dr. Cameron. And she's just thrilled because he's this famous psychiatrist. And she goes in there and gets massive doses of LSD on a regular basis for two months She's put into an induced coma with her eyes forced open, watching videos on repeat with headphones on her head on repeat. And they called this repatterning mm-hmm. is what he called called this. And, and when the when the patients started coming out of the Allen Memorial Institute after Dr. Cameron violated all of his ethics principles and treated them, I say the word treated with big air quotes around it. Yeah. They were incontinent. They would, they couldn't control their bladders. And he had erased all memories back to the age of around one. So they had no idea who they were, their family, their address, nothing. And part of that was electroconvulsive therapy or electroshock therapy. And he gave somewhere around 70 times the recommended amount, amount of shocks and voltage into that person's head. So that's I mean, that's one of the really horrible ones that we do have some kind of evidence. For. Well, yeah, and there's more evidence. You've got to take one step away because then you find that there is evidence of the other stuff we mentioned. It just it doesn't directly link to the CIA and the MK offshoots. And I say offshoots for people watching. If you go down the rabbit hole and go searching after MK Ultra, apparently ended years ago, but then something with a different name there's so many different mks and offshoots um you know one that's relevant now is a project mockingbird which essentially was about the media uh controlling the narrative of what the general populace think that was supposed to have ended but there was no official that it ended it's i know for a fact it's still going on um don't believe anything you read in the media. It's bullshit. But my point is, and I've lost the thread. That's why I'm looking down at my notes. <laughs> I told you I'd write uh, little words down there. Uh, the Ultra had... Yes, uh... it's the stepping away. In England, the Tavistock Hospital, which uh, is now called the Tavistock Institute of Human Relations, which bizarrely, as I mentioned in my documentary, Extreme Danger, Extreme Hypnosis, is in the same building as the British Psychological Society that deal out the drugs, because they're one and the same. They're about medicating the population to believe what the bloody politicians want. Uh, The Tavistock 
hospital, which is how it started, is where MK Ultra started, and then it branched out into America with CIA. It wasn't the CIA who actually started it, but if you look, if you look at the Tavistock Hospital, they there is evidence of them sexually abusing and torturing people. Yeah, it's one it's step distance. Yeah. Now, in more up-to-date terms, because your book's not about sexually abusing or torturing people. However, there is the use of fear. Fear is mentioned in there, which yeah. is a more lower level of it. Can you tell us a bit about those extremes? Because one end, obviously, is laughter and feeling good and being relaxed. The other end is fear and stuff. And then there's a whole myriad of things in between. What is it you teach the reader and, and your students? So if if a if a person experiences fear, it makes people predictable. Fear increases predictability, and it increases focus. Anything that is a potential threat to human beings automatically generates immediate 100% focus. And if you if you've watched the news, that news agency, uh, Channel Four, for instance, in in the UK, they they have to compete with Facebook and Instagram and, and social media for focus because focus for that agency is currency. Focus means they make money. Mm -hmm. So if we know 100% verifiable that fear makes us pay attention to anybody, then they know that even if you're, watch, even if you're, you know, you're watching the news and your, your Instagram notification goes off on your phone and says you've got five new likes, if your fear is high enough, your attention will stay on the news and the ratings stay high for that channel. And I'm not saying there's some conglomerate agency in, in a dark room sitting at some marble conference table, people smoking cigars, planning all of this stuff out. I think a lot of this happened organically, that there's not some big agency at work and they've just figured out these marketing agencies that spend tens of millions of of dollars on researching of what gets our attention and what makes pe people pay attention all the way down to like tracking tiny millimeter eye movements on a screen and where people are looking. So we, I mean, they do a tremendous amount of research to figure that stuff out and that's very, they're very open about it. Well, we're open to a degree. Tavistock Institute of Human Relations has a very nice website and oh, yeah. about, will help advise businesses and, um, organizations and stuff on how to get more productivity or more response in their advertising and it all looks very innocent but when you dig deep they are still linked with in most recent years there's evidential guaranteed proof that they were linked in with a company called SCL um, uh, Strategic Communications uh, Laboratories which were the parent company of Cambridge Analytica that harvested all the data information from people's social media accounts to influence the um, Brexit vote and the Donald Trump political vote years ago to brainwash the public into voting the way they wanted. Wow. That's insane. I didn't know that at all. But I'll send you my documentary you know after this. I'll send you a link to it. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. And I think that, you know, there's so many people out there that want uh, the skill of mind control. And I think 99% of people want 
the skill the same reason you know people will do anything they're they're not nefarious they're not trying to do bad stuff and i think you know we want to use persuasion for sales which is a form of mind control i have a i have a reference sheet that shows you where uh, if you're using a persuasion skill it shows you exactly where that thing draws the line on where it's consensual there's awareness there's not awareness it's against someone's will there's there's your intent it measures every persuasion technique and i'll i'll send it to you for you to include if you'd like to include it oh excellent yeah thank you and you know one thing if anybody's trying to get better in persuasion or hypnosis or influence i get phone calls all the time from people who want to learn like they say oh i don't want the basic I don't want the basic knowledge. I want the really advanced high up stuff. And what's what's funny is you need to be brilliant on the basics to be any good at up here. And then I have people that want scripts. Like what is the what are the words that you use to get a free coffee at Starbucks or how what are the exact words that you use to get upgraded to first class? And my response typically is if I give you that if I give that exact word-for-word -word script to a person with social anxiety who can't comb their hair and has really bad posture and doesn't look people in the eye, it, it's not going to work. No. I mean, I read your book, and I, 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 it's very rare that I read a book twice immediately, as in read it, then leave it maybe one day, and then reread it again. I tend to read a book finish that, go on to another book, and then maybe months later I'll go back to the book. With the ellipsis manual, I read it again, and the reason I did, and, and bear me out here, because for the first 30 seconds this will sound like I'm being negative, and it isn't. I read it, and I'm going, yeah, that's obvious, yeah, read that in that book, yeah, know about that, know about that. And I basically, I missed the point. That's why I'm saying this is, I missed the point, because, you know, I've been in this industry for over 30 years and I was very fortunate with Delavar to have to be taught things that aren't taught in normal hypnotherapy courses things that people say can't be done but we know can and it niggled me and I thought no because I'd read all the reviews of your book and I'm and pe from people I respect I thought I missed the point here so I started to read it again I'd finished it one night. The next day, I started to read it again. I brought myself in the state of mind of imagine you're back and you're like 14 and you're starting this journey and you haven't read anything. You haven't done stuff in the real world. You haven't gone out there. Read it again. And I did. And then the penny bloody dropped, which was staring me in the face. And it's what you said about you've got to be shit up, good, spot on with the basic stuff. Because what you've done in that book is you've taken lots of of proven to work elements ingredients shall we say and then and this is the genius of the book you then give examples of how to combine them together not all of them at once but ones that are relevant for the situation and it's about the context the situation it being authentic not seeming scripted being real and equipping the person with the ability to do it on the fly as opposed to seeming like some robotic i've learned this technique and now i'm you know and when i read it that second time it's like 
flipping it. This book actually is it is bloody gold dust. It really is. You've just got to some people watching this, if you've not read the book yet, or if you did read the book and you made the mistake I did the first time of thinking I've read that elsewhere, yeah, so you kind of didn't see the bigger picture, read it again. Or if you're reading it for the first time, read it and don't let stuff you already know get in the way because it is bloody gold. And one of the key things is it's about the person being adaptable. That's what I got mostly from the book, that it's about being adaptable, making it authentic and drawing out from the person in front of you all those cues that you can then use. You'll explain it better than me in a minute to formulate something that will work best there and then. Yeah, for sure. Now, in your words, how would you explain that? Because I know you'll explain it much better. Well, I mean, like I was saying a, a few minutes ago, if I gave a script of what to say to somebody who's, for lack of a better term, a loser, mm-hmm. and doesn't have their shit together, so to speak, the uh, a big thing when I was 21, I studied pickup was I, I made the mistake of doing that. Mm-hmm. And my mentor was a CIA psychiatrist. His name was actually Milton, not the same guy, yeah. but he, I told him I was studying this stuff and I'm like, man, you got to see this. You know, they've got it all mapped out. And he had me bring all these books to a restaurant for lunch. So I met him for lunch and he said, bring all of your pickup books that you bought on the internet and bring them here in your backpack. So I get to lunch and he says, put the books on the table. He's 70 years old and yeah. I'm 20. So I said, yes, sir. Put all the books up. And he said, open any book to a random page and find me a technique that isn't a way to fake or pretend like you have your shit together. And it blew my mind. The entire process was a way to fake like you're a man. Like I'm going to pretend and I'm going to, I'm going to trick somebody into thinking that I've got my shit together. So I realized that, that influence is a byproduct of basically having it all together. When we have authority in, in, in an interaction with another person, the authority happens because we're sending all kinds of nonverbal signals. I get calls from people, I want to take control, I want to be, you know, I want to learn the super advanced stuff. And I say, well, let's do a video call really quick. And their house looks like shit. You know, there's stuff covering all the flat surfaces, there's dishes piled up in the sink, there's piles of laundry all over the place. And I'm I'm thinking in my head, like, you want to control other people and you have zero control over yourself. And that bleeds out. People spot that stuff. Our subconscious, our language, just me speaking right now, our language is new for our species. It's brand new in the, in the overall timeline of things. Nonverbal communication is 100 million years old. Our brains are very good at picking that up. The problem happens when that mammalian part of our brain is not capable of speaking English. It can't speak any language. So when it sees something and it's like, whoa, that's a red flag, it can't talk to you and tell you what it saw. 
but it can give you a gut feeling and it can let you know whether or not to trust somebody, whether or not to be compliant, whether or not to obey. And that is the scary part that it's not what you say. It's the person who's saying it. That's more important. If we go to the top fortune 500 companies of all the U S and all the UK, anywhere in the world and take the top sales guy from each one of those companies, the number one guy in sales, are they going to be the guy with all the books, scripts, and all the sales? They've been to every sales training. Or will they be the guy that can read anybody? They have extreme social skills, and they, can, they have the charisma and the ability to talk to anybody. We all agree. It's unanimous. It's the second guy. Nobody says, wow, I'm the number one sales guy thanks to those scripts or thanks to that PowerPoint training I went to. It's the type of communicator that we are and how good we are at, at showing up and, and having authority, connecting to other people. Then the persuasion skills are on fire. The persuasion skills work on their own, but when it's, when it's spoken by somebody like an authority figure, somebody with real strong charisma, strong social skills, that's what makes them on fire. If we put Milton Erickson versus Bill Clinton in a job, you need to go into a public place and, and ask somebody to do something for you. Bill Clinton would kick his ass. Oh, yeah. And I, and I respect Milton. I have 50 of his books here behind me probably. And he is a major contributor to the field. He's the smartest, best hypnotist that ever lived probably. Uh, well, still. Well, well, we'll agree to disagree on that. He was a psychomaniac, bloody nut job who liked to torture people and leave them in stress positions at funny angles against walls or um milton yeah or sexually abuse them and stuff he's a complete and as a hypnotist he was pretty crap and he i don't know anything this. about that oh he admits this in his own in some of his own in his own journal magazine that he published that he got great joy out of taking psychiatric patients placing them in uh trance and then putting them at like um, 45 degree stress positions resting on the head against the hospital wall and leaving him there for hours because he found it hilarious or um, encouraging clients female clients to come wearing less and less clothing each session I'll, I'll but, send you a, I'll make a note let's go, I'll send you let's my just, biography of hypnosis that exposes him but you're right Bill Clinton wipe the floor with him well I mean Bill if we take Milton Erickson out of it Bill Clinton versus like a really, really good hypnotist. Bill Clinton would kick their ass because that skill is is what makes people obedient, what makes people start to recognize that there's an authority figure here or I'm very connected to this person. And we hear people say it all the time. Like when I spoke to Bill Clinton, there were, it's like there was no one else in the room. There's like a bubble that causes that reality. So who the person is that's doing the technique is really important. And that's that's my long, extremely long answer to your, your question about the ellipsis manual. Excellent. Excellent. Don't, I wouldn't say that was long. It was just descriptive. Um, yeah, because you brought up Bill Gates and you said, oh, put him against a good hypnotist and Bill Gates would win. I disagree, especially if that good hypnotist was one of the ones that had taught Bill Gates in the first place because, you know, Bill and pretty much all politicians do have, unbeknownst to the general public on a large level, although in recent years they have been more open about the fact that they do do 
training with body language experts. That's why you see a lot of stand ups like they come to when they're you know when they're talking, they'll do a lot of this with the hands, the open gesture, and all that. They actually get taught by body language people this stuff. They do do so called NLP verbal linguistic courses now. They've admitted that in interviews. But the stuff that they don't admit in interviews that they do get trained in, um, which arguably comes under the banner hypnosis. Um, so I would say if the person who taught Bill went against Bill, we'd probably have a draw. Well, I think, I mean, there's there's plenty of people out there with extreme levels of charisma that have no training that are able to do whatever they want with people like mm. uh, like a Charles Manson kind of a guy or somebody with who is a, a cult leader personality who has that really strong charisma. And I think that's that's what makes up most of our elite level of of salespeople around the world, the most influential salespeople and the most influential interrogators who are able to get confessions out of people and. 99% of interrogators have never had training in hypnosis. And I, I teach interrogators for a living. That's well, my number one job. Those people who say those people are technically what get, uh, some people would term, and this doesn't necessarily have to be negative for people at home, it just sounds it, uh, psychopaths. Because psychopaths naturally don't give a shit. They're not scared about going talking to people. So they can appear to be charismatic, where it's just that they don't give a bloody shit. Mm-hmm. Um, and that manifesting people who end up running big corporations, in politics, sales, it, it's the psychopath personality gene, isn't it? Isn't that the key? I, I don't think psychopaths and charisma are correlated at all. But I think there are a lot of people with high charisma that are psychopaths. But I don't think that they're they're connected that much. And I've done 20 years of research on it. But I do think that the pe- the the high charisma people that wind up being leaders of companies are do have some of those traits, sociopathic or psychopathic traits, which are just a lack of social concern. That I think it's more common for them to be narcissistic than psychopathic. Then there's like some actual psychopathy involved to where they don't care about anyone. But I think that the narcissistic traits are a lot more prevalent. I have a whole course for women on how to identify narcissists. And it's oh, cool. it's been a whole lot of fun teaching. The details will be on Chase's website. <laughs> links below this video or audio podcast, depending on which you're looking at. So, you know, I mean, we're, we're talking about in the military area of things. Obviously, you're teaching people how these techniques can be used in sales, how they could use them in the dating arena, how they could use them just to generally be more confident in life, get promotion at work, a whole bunch of positive things. It's just that I've yeah. purposely brought up the dark side because, because, frankly, I think a lot of people that are not in our industry who, who probably initially bought your book have been drawn to it because of the oh wow we've seen this film we've read this work of apparent fiction in the past and this is saying that these things are genuinely possible i suspect that that you know it, it is part of um people's in, in, initial interest 
but you have been involved in the military and these things do get used and as you said before you touched upon it can be in situations where not getting it right could literally lead to yeah in that moment hostage situations negotiating and stuff i mean how do you how do you deal with situations like that i don't mean necessarily the techniques but i mean how do you keep yourself in the zone to yourself be consciously and also i suppose got instinct level unconsciously using the things that you're teaching your books and your courses so that you're shutting out that human i'm gonna say yeah human fear of the situation that we don't get this right it's not just a rejection from some pretty girl saying i'm not interested this could be life or death yeah i think over time you know every everybody in the military who's been in in a gunfight the first time is is scary and terrifying second time is a little less and the third time is a little less and it continues. And the, there's a popular phrase in the military that exposure equals composure. Oh, so the I... repetitive exposure to the experiences, and they, they obviously they start you out in small trainings. We're shooting on a shooting range. Then I'm shooting in a, in a live action thing where there's guys trying to kill me. Then I have a black hood on my head, and I have a tenth of a second to make a decision when they pull the hood off do I shoot? Do I not shoot? Are there other people in the room? So they, they level that up to the point where it's extremely stressful. Then you've got the hood on your head and it comes off. You get hit in the face with pepper spray and three guys are attacking you trying this to get your training. This is during training? Yeah. Okay, right. And then uh, the guys start attacking you. And if they get your gun out of the holster, then you fail the, you fail the training. So they, they gradually ramp up the stress and they call it stress inoculation, but there's obviously no way to inoculate somebody against stress, but that repetitive exposure to stressful scenarios. And I'll, I'll privately send you a video of me going through that if you'd like. Wow. And that, uh, that repetitive exposure really makes a person a lot more confident when the, when the time comes. So it's just so many repetitions. Now, I can see that in life, things happening in life, and I don't mean any disrespect by this, but I mean like things happening in life that you know are not training exercises, that you come out of the other side of and you think, thank fuck for that, I'm still yeah. alive type thing. And this is life in general. Um, that the more we, what doesn't kill us makes us stronger, the cliche is. I can see that with real life because part of your brain or the majority of your brain knows that was a genuine life situation that I survived. And next time I might do it a bit differently. So it's less stressful. Yeah. But you'd know you were in the training situation, wouldn't you? Yes. Well, how does that work? Because I know, yeah, I, I do know because I spoke to other people in the military in the past that, you know, in training situations, there were, you know, people are going to physically beat the crap out of you. It's not, oh, but you know, they're not genuinely going 
to shoot you in a training situation yeah. dead. No, well, not purposely. Could happen accidentally. I, I get that. So how does that it's effectively inoculate you when there's part of your brain will know that this isn't a total genuine life or death situation? That's I can't quite get my head around that. So it's not the the brain being exposed to life or death situation is not what inoculates you against stress in in combat. When we go through training, there are consequences like you fail the training, you have to start over, or you can't deploy, or you're going to get shot by a really hard piece of wax that's not a real bullet, but you'll get shot by that. But the training also gives you muscle memory. So okay. I'm I'm in the training were filmed by cameras, lots of cameras all the way down to where I have to drop a magazine, grab a new magazine, load that up, chamber a new round into the gun and get a round out in less than a second. So it's down to tiny muscle movements because in a life or death situation, your fine motor skills go away. So like, think of like if you've ever panicked and then tried to dial a phone number on your, on your phone, it's very hard. Yeah. But in, they only go away unless you've trained and trained and trained to do those muscle movements. The second thing is that during our really advanced gunfighting courses, you can't make facial expressions. Your face has to stay completely still the entire time because our, our physiology creates psychology. Like if we're grimacing, we'll increase stress hormones. If we're frowning or gritting our teeth, we create stress hormones. So we're repetitively learning habits so that when combat does happen, it's not necessarily that I've been through stress before. It's the confidence I have in my training that helps me to calm down. So the repetitions, I've been through this a hundred times. I know that if there's a guy behind this door right here, I, I'm going to pop him in the head before he gets a chance to shoot me. And the confidence in my training is what keeps the heart rate down in those situations. So is that so? Do you end up kind of um, in sports? I'm trying to phrase this in a way. That's why I'm finding the wording now because I want people at home to, to to understand how this applies to hypnotherapy. Because all what you're saying, it really, really does. Um, do you then reach a point? where you are automatically in the zone so to speak so with hypnotherapy we can take sports people for example get them to um visualize the times that they know they've been at their peak performance and stuff and anchor that um and then amplify it and feel really good and get so they, they can flick themselves into the zone on yeah. demand is that kind of happening but here we're talking automatically because it's been anchored through the repetition of the training yeah so it's 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 also anchored through physicality i'm smelling gunpowder i've got a 25 pound steel plate body armor on i've got all of this stuff on my body i've got these gloves strapped onto my wrist and i reach down and i'm pulling this gun out all of those things are anchors so my heart rate, as soon as all that stuff happens, my heart rate starts going down and that gun's coming out. And it's very, very similar. And I've noticed a similarity my whole life that there, 
we're experiencing anchors all the time, especially through training, because it's so often we do it thousands of times before the real thing happens. But that's very, very similar. And there's a, a thing called the Human Performance Laboratory here that studies our, our Navy SEALs. Uh-huh. And they, a really cool study that they did was that when the SEALs were started to engage in a gunfight, their heart rates dropped the moment the gunfight started. So they got shot at, their focus sharpened up to whatever wherever the threat was, and then the heart rate started falling. So everything slowed down for them because of this, this repetition and training. And it was the same with SAS. They studied the SAS soldiers, and it was the exact same because the, the training regiments are pretty similar. Cool. So, I mean, life, I mean, life in general, that's like Sig- Sigmund Freud, Sigmund Freud and other psycho, the rapists say correctly that sort of generally speaking, the age of zero to seven, the formative years, uh, are when the blank slate of the child's mind gets screwed up or positively programmed or a combination thereof. But this is going on, it's going on full stop through life, full stop, isn't it? And your book, your book goes into spotting how the person's been affected by those things, doesn't it? Yeah. Yeah. And we have, I mean, our, the book is, is fantastic, but we, you know, we have some online trainings that are highly advanced, way better than the book that, that really go into how to spot fears and insecurities. And I can teach you how to spot the hidden fears in any human being in less than two minutes. And these are fears that their friends and family don't even know. And that's a guarantee in, in our courses. And you're welcome to come to any that you'd like. And that just being able to see those other, other people a certain way changes how we feel about the situation. And when you say I'm playing devil's advocate with this one, and when you say you can tell them what the fears are, uh, you can teach people how to do that. In fairness, I can teach people how to do that now in 30 seconds, thanks to the joy of cold reading. And 99% of the time, it'll be right. Pretty much every human being on this planet, generally speaking, whether they'll admit it or not, is another matter, but is scared of dying. All right. Obviously, there's exceptions. People who've had that trained out, but generally speaking, people are scared of dying. People are scared of looking like a failure. People are scared of feeling like a failure. Now, what that means is different to everyone. But if you've got someone in front of you, a psychic, if someone who you're doing a psychic reading allegedly for somebody and you say oh i get a sense of a feeling from this tarot card here or this line on your hand that you spend a lot of time worrying about um whether people think you're successful or not or whether you failed in that you're going to get a hit 99.9 percent of the time recurring yeah because human beings aren't that different at the core essence are you ready I am, yeah, because obviously you, you to, to do a course on it, you must be doing something different. So the fears that I teach are hidden secret social fears, social fears. The fears that are social with other people 
fall into different categories. And I teach you how to identify what type that person is. The social fears are what stop us from going into a trance, what stop us from agreeing to confess to a crime. And it's the exact same techniques that we developed for MI6, the, this, this fear spotting techniques. They're not cold reading whatsoever. And these are the fears that govern the person's life that they don't even know about. So this is the, the dark side or the, the shadow, so to speak. And we're figuring out what causes the person shame. Or what is their tactic to avoid feeling shame? And I promise you, you'll have a holy shit moment uh, when you when you come to the course, if you do. And that in in the conversation, we're, we're taking a step away from cold reading and we're looking at indicators of social fear because the social fears are what govern their decision making processes. So my words and my techniques then everything I'm going to say, if I'm a hostage negotiator, will be driven by understanding that the, that fear is running that person's life. We're all afraid of some things that are that are general, where we can say you're afraid of rejection or you're afraid of feeling like a failure or death or public speaking, which is a big one. And those are our fears that kind of sit in the background. They typically don't run our lives in especially social situations. So where I'm a stage hypnotist or something and I'm doing a show, if I can spot the fears that prevent the person from going into trance, my pre-talk will change, for instance, as a, as a hypnotist, to make the person go into trance a lot faster. And if I am a, in sales, I know exactly the fear that's making the person either buy or not buy the product, obviously depending on the, the context. But it is it is uh, very different from cold reading. Cool. And uh, I'll prove it. I'll prove it to you in the course. No, hey, I believe you. I believe you. It's just that um, it just I wanted to bring that up because there is there are certain things as you've just said yourself that apply to everyone. Now, when you get that wonderful word shame, I would add to that the word blame um in the sense of people want to avoid feeling shame but people often want to avoid feeling a sense of blame being at fault for things and i think those two go together does, sure. does that work with what you teach people i don't because obviously i haven't done that particular course that you you you've talked about i'm just going off um, what I've used with, with clients and stuff, um, quite often people's lack of self-esteem can be because they're carrying around these feelings of shame and self-blame, yeah. which is the social stuff. And if you can get them to kind of offload that baggage, the rest of it falls into place. It's so true. And I think, you know, when you can see somebody's shame, and their shadow is what, you know, Carl Jung described as, as the human shadow. We, we write down a few things we don't like about another person. That's typically what we don't like about ourselves. Yeah. And mm-hmm. we're, when we're a no, and in, I, I use this phrase a lot. If I'm a no to somebody, then I'm a no to that quality of myself. So 
me me being a no means I'm judging somebody for being self-serving. And technically, that's something that I really don't like about myself. So we'll judge people and typically we'll judge people around the things that we're secretly ashamed of. And that's where that that shadow comes in. I think the shadow and shame are the same, if not just woven together permanently. Mm. And for, for, for people watching, listening, we're going to have to call, we've gone just over the hours, so we're going to have to bring this to an end in a minute. For people at home, it may seem like I, but it is me that's kept bringing up negative or nefarious uses of these things. I know them chasers very kindly and honestly answered the question, but it was me that's focused a lot on, on, on negativity. And the reason I've done that, just to clarify, because I genuinely believe as a hypnotherapist, that it's all well and good having all these tools in your toolkit, that this technique, somebody with that, with that, that are all positive foundations and you've been taught positively. But if you look into the stuff that genuinely can, make people do things against their will then if you can take techniques the underlying techniques that can make a mind-controlled assassin how much bloody easier is it going to be to take those basic fundamentals and cure somebody's phobia or give them the confidence to stand up and speak in public you know it's going to be think about it a damn sight easier so when you get resistant clients where that tool in the toolkit didn't work and that one didn't and, you know, you get the client that comes to you that's been to other therapists and it didn't work. Well, use more, what I would call, nefarious techniques, but with positive intent. Because if it's positive intent and you help the client get the results that they want, then I would say that that makes it ethical. Um, yeah. But we'll see. I don't know where that would lie on your ethical scale of... If the yeah. person's get if the person's come to you and they want a result, I think ethically we should use every possible technique in the book to get them the result they want, the change they want in their life, as long as no one is physically, emotionally, spiritually, psychologically, or any other level, no negative long term hurt is involved to them or anyone else, then yeah. whatever the technique is, I think we should be using it. Yeah, if we're leaving people better than we found them, then we're doing okay. In which case, before I ask Chase the last question, remember below this video there are website links. That is where you can find out more about Chase's life courses once they start up again after this bloody lockdown we're currently in, but also his online courses that you could get started with straight away. And of course, the book, The Ellipsis Manual, which is available from all bookshops and obviously Chase's website. I encourage you, if you've not read the book, to get the book now, go immediately and order it. You will not be disappointed and you will be motivated to then go and look at Chase's website and look into the other stuff. Um, thank you so much for being so honest and open and for spending this time with me over the past hour so I can share this with my viewers and listeners. My pleasure. Um, and the final question, this is the same one I ask everyone every week. So um, obviously, Bendy, how you want to answer based on your knowledges and experiences and the stuff we spoke about. But the last question I always ask is, 
for the viewers, the listeners who are going to be largely involved in some form of mind therapy element of the industry, although we do have stage hypnotists as, as, as well tuning. Um, what would your, if you could only give people one piece of advice in the context of them doing something to make themselves a better therapist or exponent of change techniques what would that key piece of advice be we talked about this earlier that our brains are reading nonverbal communication all the time and if there's one thing fear does to our body is it makes it move faster from how fast our eyelids shut and then open to how fast our head moves and our hands move in conversation so if we move quickly while we're speaking to someone, our hand gestures are fast, our head movements are fast, our eye, eye blinking is quick, we're broadcasting fear. And here's the ultimate message is where you speak from, you're speaking to. So if I'm speaking from a place of doubt or uncertainty, that's the place that I'm addressing in the person I'm talking to. So the one tip I would leave with your audience is if you're persuading another person, especially in therapy or hypnosis, never move faster than you could if you were underwater. Okay. So, yeah. So generally speaking, for most people, that is going to mean slow down. Slow it down. Cool. Excellent. Because I... I, I Viewers at home, you'll know if you watch videos of me. Uh, I am Mr. Over the Top. Very animated, certainly on stage. Um, yeah, slow down. See, even I have to pay <laughs> attention sometimes, viewers. Thank you, Chase. An absolute pleasure. Guys and girls, as always, please click like. Please share with everybody you know. Um and then that way, as we can grow the audience, we can continue this on uh, for the benefit of helping each and every one of you to grow. So we'll see you next week for another edition of Hypnosis Week. Thank you very much indeed, Mr. Chase Hughes. Bye for now. <laughs>